Welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner. My guest today is Dr. Becky Nauman. Becky is an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a member of the core faculty at University of North Carolina's Injury Prevention Research Center. Hello, Becky. Hello. So tell me what you've been doing since I saw you last. I think it was probably about 18 months ago. That's right. Yeah. So I'm a a few different projects, right? So um, yeah, most of my work is in the um, opioid field and the road safety field. And we've started up a a couple of different projects um, uh, locally within the state, um, doing some work on road safety um, coalitions here. And then more broadly doing some research studies focusing on the problem of drug overdose that we have nationally, well, here and really everywhere. Are you happy if I interrupt you a little bit so I can pursue some of the points you make? Because you're covering a a broad territory already that I'd like to see if we can uh, separate out into pieces. Yes. Tell me about opioid work that you're doing. Have you been in that for long? Yes, so I've been in opioid work, um, let's see, probably for about five or six years. I did my dissertation in that space um, at the University of North Carolina, which was really focusing on looking at um, a Medicaid policy um, focused on preventing overutilization of opioids. And so I did a policy analysis of that, um, looking at both kind of the intended and unintended consequences of putting strict policies around Um, opioid use for Medicaid beneficiaries. What do you mean by policy use and and policy interventions and opioid? Can you give me an example of what you're talking about there? Yeah, so specifically we were looking at a policy um, called a lock-in program. And this is a policy that's used by a lot of different insurance companies. Pretty much every state Medicaid system across the U.S. has some version of this. And basically what they do is they use these algorithms to identify um, beneficiaries, so uh, you know people people in their insurance population that are um, overutilizing opioids, and so that looks in different Medicaid systems. In North Carolina, where I'm located, what that looks like is if you're getting you know like six different opioid prescriptions in a two month period, or getting those prescriptions for all, from several different doctors, they put you in this program that says, okay, we're only going to start. Um, paying for these prescriptions if you now get them from one doctor and one prescriber. And so they're trying to kind of control access in that way. Um, and so we did a, I did a policy analysis of that. And what we found was when people were put in those programs, they did in fact get fewer opioids um, from the, the insurer's perspective. But we did an innovative linkage where we linked not only the insurance data, but we linked it to um, a state prescription drug monitoring program, which is a state program that looks at all the prescriptions being dispensed. And what we found was many of the prescriptions that they were getting were now just being paid for by cash. So they weren't necessarily, you know, getting fewer opioids. They were just switching the method and the payment by which they got them. So again, looking at some of the intended and unintended consequences of these policies we found was was really, really important. So unintended consequences of policies is a critical and much understudied area, I think. And we might come back to that because uh, you've got some skills there I'd like to see if we can talk about. But prior to that, can you explain to me, please, 
what this issue of opioids is in terms of an injury prevention issue. Why are you focusing on that as a problem? I know you identified access to and prescriptions and um, and the policies relating to managing that. But, but A, why is that an issue? But B, why, why are opioids an issue? Aren't they a medication that are prescribed for a good purpose? Right. So, so from an injury prevention standpoint, what we're, what we're really focused on is trying to prevent um, unintentional well, and intentional, but overdoses. So in the U.S., just like many other countries, we have this huge increase um, over the last several years right now, many, 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 many years of um, drug overdoses. We actually just came out with some um, preliminary numbers, I think just this last week, maybe the week before, showing that despite the fact that we thought we were kind of making the curve in terms of this huge increase in overdoses that we've been seeing that in fact our 2019 numbers look like they're continuing to go up. So a huge problem of, um, of, of substance use disorders, um, of, of overdose and um, so I'm, so I'm really focused on, okay, what are some of these policies that we're trying to put into place? Are they working as they're intended? Are they what we should really be focusing our resources and our time on? Or are there other things we should be um, thinking about? So both, I like to focus both on, okay, I'm an epidemiologist, so let's really hone in on some of these specific policies. But then at the same time, what tools do we have to kind of zoom back out on sort of the larger um, system or the larger set of factors at play in our environments and our communities and how can we really figure out where to focus um, resources to make an impact on the issue. And it does sound like you're blending methodologies and able to do that. Tell me your other topic you said you've spent a fair bit of time on is road safety. Are there any similarities between those two areas of interest in terms of their injury prevention approaches? That's really interesting. Well, I guess just just starting out, road traffic injuries, just like overdoses, they're they're huge, huge, huge um, uh, leading cause of injury death in the U.S. So that I've always gravitated towards both of both of these issues um, in terms of their approaches and what we use. So in road safety, there all there are also several kind of policy approaches um, that we use to address the issue. In the U.S., right, a lot of these are state-based policies, so they look kind of different in each state. Um, I, we have a study going on right now that's looking at not necessarily a, a, a road traffic injury prevention policy in its focus, but we're looking at the road safety implications of it, and that's of a um, congestion pricing policy. So these are policies that a lot of major cities are now starting to consider. These are to you know policies put into place to kind of decrease congestion. So what they're essentially doing is um, tolling uh, certain roadways to try to financially encourage. Uh, motor vehicle users to shift to other transit or to other transportation modes, be it transit or, you know, cycling or something else. And so we're really interested in focusing, you know, most, most, most cities and um, areas are focused on, okay, what's the cost implication of this? What's the congestion implication of this? And we're saying, okay, well, what's the safety implication? How are we shifting road users? And do we have, you know, the environments in place, the built environment, is it in a place to absorb if we start shifting a lot of people to cycling or to walking? And what will our safety profiles look like in these cities now? Um, so I guess it's another example of kind of evaluating a policy and looking at some of these um, policy implications and thinking about, okay, what's, what's intended here and what might be unintended and how can we try to get a good understanding of what those unintended consequences might be before it goes into place, put things in, in a, uh, that could prevent um, injuries. Thank you. What I think is particularly brilliant about the work that you're doing 
is that perspective which you brought out in both of those. And that's this uh, big impact problems, um, large policy-based interventions. How does this differ from the more traditional approach that most people in injury prevention uh, see as their core business um, in terms of the opportunities for leverage or opportunities for making a difference? Why have you chosen your point of leverage at the policy level? That's a really good question. So why have I focused at the policy level? Um, well, I think a lot of these policies, right, they do have um, great potential to impact a huge, huge, huge population of people. So I think they are often um, a, a key leverage point in a lot of what we can go after. So I think that's that's one of the reasons. I might shift to how you got this perspective, because I think we've got a sense now of your current work and how you view the challenges ahead of you. But um, as you say, you finished a PhD only reasonably recently. Can you explain to us where you're currently working, what your current workspace looks like um, in terms of its um, academic workspace uh, mm -hmm. and uh, how you got there? So, um, so currently, so yes, I did just, I finished my PhD at the end of 2017. So just about two and a half years ago now. And I did that at the University of North Carolina in the US, um, a PhD in injury epidemiology. Um, so where I am is I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology, and then I'm also considered core faculty at our Injury Prevention uh, Research Center that we have at UNC. That's one of nine CDC-funded uh, research centers uh, situated at universities uh, across the U.S. Um, so prior to coming to um, UNC, I was actually at the CDC um, in the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, and so that was really my um, my start in injury prevention. I worked there for six years on the transportation safety team, really had a passion and a love for it, um, really followed and loved the work that was being done at UNC, so decided to get a PhD there, um, and then I've been really fortunate to stay. I really love where I sit at the university. So as part of the Injury Prevention Research Center, it has this really nice home of, you know, what might be considered, I think, sometimes some of the more traditional academic um, research that you can do, but also a lot of um, kind of community-based outreach, thinking about how to translate that research into practice, um, how to conduct a lot of um, sort of um, outreach and education with the community. So I definitely have studies that I would say are a little bit more, you know, academic in nature and follow, you know, we're, we're getting data, we're crunching numbers, we're making sure that it um, gets into, you know, journals, but also we're constantly thinking, okay, how can we translate this into the community? Um, what does this mean for North Carolina? What does this mean for the U.S. and more broadly? Um, and, and we have sort of a, a whole team of, of staff that helps us um, do that there. So it's, um, it's a really nice place to sit. And it's one of the main reasons I, I, I stayed at, at UNC to do that. Becky, you've worked in a public health agency and you then decided to do a PhD. Taking on a PhD is a huge um, step. Uh, can you tell me what drove you to that and what you've decided is the real benefit for you of having completed it, if there is one. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there definitely is. Um, I, so at the CDC, a lot of people do have advanced degrees. It's a, a very obviously educated agency. Um, 
And so I was surrounded by a lot of other um, um, teammates when I was on the transportation uh, safety team that did have their, their PhD that had done, you know, epidemiology or behavioral health or some other, you know, public health related um, discipline. Um, and so I really just started reaching out to a lot of them and asking them sort of, you know, what they got out of it, how that really altered their career path, um, you know, how, how they viewed having done that versus, you know, if they can imagine having taken another path and got a lot of encouragement, especially from um, like Ruth Schultz and Ann Dillinger and several others at CDC who were just really wonderful mentors at the time and continue to be so. And I have gotten a lot out of it. I think that, you know, methodologically, I think um, the way some of the questions I ask and, and hopefully some of the ways that I'm able to kind of answer um, those questions. I think I've, you know, really grown in that respect from doing it. And now it's, it's really fun for me to be able to also help, um, you know, which I, which I could do when I was at CDC um, without a PhD. But now that I have one, I feel like I'm also able to um, provide more mentorship to um, students and others kind of early in the field in, in terms of kind of these different career paths. And so, yeah, I do think it's been a great benefit and, and, and I, I really do like where I'm situated right now with it. Which leads me to the question that we've touched on a few times over the years as we've chatted. And this is that sense of fellowship among mid-career academics using fellowship there in terms of its uh, common or garden use, a collaboration, a, a, an association between people of, of like backgrounds and interests. As you're a mid-career academic, uh, to what extent have we been able to, in the field to develop uh, this sense of mentorship or, or um, collaboration uh, horizontally so that you've got uh, support from people, not just in your own small area, or, or largest area of your university um, associations, but across the country, across the world, so that we can collectively as a group address some of the larger issues uh, that uh, each of us can learn from as well as contribute to. Yeah, so I think that the um, a lot of the professional associations have been really key for that. Um, networking with people both across the country and in other countries. Um, so I, the first one that that comes to mind is SAVER, Society for Advancement of Violence and Injury Research. And early on, I was really encouraged to, to get involved in that and to any of the committees, which I, I did. I'm on the a Student and Young Professional Committee. And that's been an absolutely amazing way to um, collaborate with others uh, across the U.S. Um, not as much as across the world, but definitely across the U.S., I, again, I think I was fortunate starting out um, at CDC and I've been able to kind of maintain a network there and had been able to kind of meet some uh, more, I guess, international colleagues through that um, experience. And then, um, you know, while it's still local, I think that at UNC, by nature of having one of my primary kind of research interests being um, in road safety, um, UNC is really fortunate to have a, a highway safety research center as well, which has psychologists and city and regional planners and engineers and people from a variety of disciplines that I'm um, able to work with often. So in that respect, really able to kind of draw on different disciplines. So yeah, I guess it's just kind of looking, looking for that in multiple areas, both, you know, historically keeping networks, looking for, you know, constant opportunities to form new networks and then making sure you're not missing opportunities around you to, to kind of um, reach out and um, talk to others and other disciplines and areas. 
I think your last uh, couple of sentences there are a great place to leave this conversation um, and pick it up somewhere down the track. The idea of always looking for new opportunities and having that inquiring mind, and looking for um, others who, with a like mind to see if collectively you can create a greater good, I think is a, is a wonderful um, theme for both this conversation, but also perhaps uh, the ones that we can subsequently have. So thank you very much for your time today, Becky. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Rod. We've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Becky Nauman from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can subscribe to Injury Prevention Podcasts on your favorite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month.